Okay, today we're talking about evolution again, and this is part three of a three-part series. So we don't have to listen to it anymore, which is good. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. As you're turning there, I'll give you some introductory statements. About three years ago, I was at my desk at work, and I got a text from Ben Parkin, and it said, would you mind sharing your testimony with the church tonight? It was during an evening service. And I said, sure, and I texted back, how long do you want me to talk? Five minutes, 10 minutes? And he said, no, I want you to speak 45 minutes. I don't have a 45-minute testimony. I was not in a gutter, covered in my own vomit, with maggots in my legs, strung out on drugs, hiding from the police, and had no friends and no money. That is not my testimony. But I do have a rather unique testimony, much different than most people. And if you're a high school student here today, or a junior high, and you attend church regularly, statistics show that when you go off to college, 70% of you will not be attending church. 70% will not be attending church on a regular basis. And so they've looked into that. Why is that the case? And several reasons came up. One, of course, is peer pressure. But the other was the things that you're learning in church excuse me, things you're learning in school. The things you're learning in school come down to evolution. You're being taught evolution as the truth. You can't correlate that with church, and so you start dropping out of church. My testimony is a little bit different than that. In the mid-1970s, I was at UCLA getting a bachelor's degree in biology, which means I was getting a bachelor's degree in evolution. And I was studying evolution, and as I was studying evolution, I started saying, look, none of this makes sense. This evolution isn't right. But all my professors were saying it, and to get a good grade, I had to be able to know it. And by getting a good grade means if I wanted to go on to medical school, I had to be in the top 5% of the class. Now, trying to be in the top 5% of something you don't understand is very difficult. I got very good at telling answers that I didn't believe in. And I got through the class. But the question is, what do you do if your child comes home and says, Dad, I heard in my textbook that says evolution is true. Or your grandson says, Dad, you don't, Granddad, you don't believe in that evolution, do you? Everybody knows evolution is true. First Peter 3.15 says sanctify. That means make holy or set apart, make special. Christ says, Lord, in your heart, your heart is everything that is involved in you, always being ready to make a defense to everyone. Are you able to make that defense of Christianity when it comes to culture versus evolution? And why do we want to do that? To give an account for the hope that is in us. And how do we give that hope? We give it with gentleness and reverence. So it's not just being able to answer the question, but how do you do it in the context of giving hope to somebody while doing it in a very gentle way? And that's what 1 Peter 3.15 says. And so when I went to college, at the same time, I started reading the Bible. Now, people ask me, did you read the Bible because you wanted to prove the Bible wrong? No. As I was telling my home group last Friday, I read the Bible because if... You want to be the Renaissance man, the educated man. You have to at least once read the story that is the most widely read book in the world, and that's the Bible. So I merely read it as literature. So I'm reading the Bible. A lot of battle scenes in the Old Testament is what I remember. And I was taking evolution. I said, this doesn't make sense. And it started my journey toward a worldview that could incorporate these things. And through that journey, I eventually came to Christianity 45 years ago. And I've been a Christian ever since. So I want to be able to give you guys today the hope and the ability to share with people when it comes to evolution, because I feel so strongly about that subject. Now, another thing I feel strongly about is sharing the gospel with people, just the plain Jesus gospel. And I've taken a new job recently, and I've had to travel up to Seattle, St. Peter's Hospital, quite a bit. 
And it really was just on my heart. I've got to share the gospel with somebody that doesn't know it. And as I was traveling up there, I was driving by myself in my car. I saw a car disabled on the road in front of me. And I saw a guy walking. And I thought, I should stop and talk to this guy, and hopefully the conversation will come up about Christ. So I stopped and I picked him up. Now, do not do this. <laughs> do not do what I'm telling you to, that I did. So I picked him up, and I'm thinking, you know, man, I hope this conversation can turn to the Lord and maybe evolution. And he opened the door, and he was very nice looking, late 20s, early 30s, very playful. Oh, sir, thank you very much for picking me up. I really appreciate it. And we start driving down the freeway, and I'm thinking, how do I start this conversation? And he turns to me and says, hey, you mind if I ask you a question? <laughs> and hey, this is my opening. I said, no, not at all. Go ahead, ask me your question. And he said, how did you know when you picked me up I wasn't a mass murderer? Oh, man, you know, the, <laughs> the fact that he would even ask that question, you know? Just kind of my hair stood up on the back of my neck. and So I started thinking about it, and I go, no. I said, no, I knew you weren't a mass murderer. And you know how I know you weren't a mass murderer? The chances of two mass murders being in the same car <laughs> at the Just totally impossible. So that, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just pray as we study this most important topic, the, the topic that the devil just wants you to believe in is this evolution, that you'll let these lessons stay with us so that we can share it with our family and friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, part one, you probably remember, maybe you weren't here, we talked about evolution. A lot of it revolved around dinosaur DNA. You remember the story from Jurassic Park? There was a mosquito embedded in some amber. They drill a hole, get the blood from the mosquito, put it into a frog's egg, and behold, you have a dinosaur. What they didn't talk about was the second law of thermodynamics, which means things decline with age. Look at the barns around Lewis County. You can see they all fall apart, right? And without energy being put into a system, Without anything happening in that DNA in the mosquito, it's going to fall apart. So we know half of the DNA falls apart after 521 years. How do we know that? Through studies using dodo birds and mummies. This particular mummy is 1,000 years old. So after 521 years, 50% of the DNA is gone, only 50% remains. Do another 521 years, or now we're out to 1,042 years, Half of the 50% is destroyed, and we get down to 25%, so on and so on. It keeps going down. Till you get to 10,000 years, this is how much you have left. Two ten-thousandths of a percent. That is beyond what we can find in science. Okay? But evolutionists tell us that dinosaurs went extinct 60 million years ago. So if after 10,000 years there isn't any dinosaur left, we shouldn't be able to find any DNA, right? Well, Smithsonian Magazine, not basically a creationist magazine by any means, said dinosaur shocker. They actually found DNA inside dinosaurs. And it's not just one dinosaur. They found it in several dinosaurs, and the number is increasing each time showing that dinosaurs can't be extinct 60 million years ago. It's less than 10,000 years ago. Now, since we're on the topic of things which decay, let's talk about carbon-14. Carbon-14 is taken up by animals while they're living, and it decays into carbon-12. The half-life is a little bit longer than the 521 years. It's 5,600 years. So that means by 100,000 years, we shouldn't be able to find anything. We're told by evolutionists that coal, oil, fossil wood, those have all been preserved underground for millions of years. Well, that's not getting any more carbon-14 in there. 
So after millions of years, you shouldn't be able to find any carbon-14 in all these fossilized fuels. But guess what? You do find carbon-14 in there, meaning that it's less than 10,000. Evolutionists tell us, well, you've got a bad method for detecting carbon-14. So they developed a new method, the AMS method. They retested, and guess what they found? Carbon-14. Showing again, it's not a thousand years old. Diamonds, they've found carbon-14 inside of them, which are said to be a billion years old. Again, no carbon-14. There are other ways to date things. You can see here by a list of them. But if you date the same object using different techniques, you get widely varied ages for them. Showing it's very difficult to get an accurate description of how old something is. In part two, Daryl and I talked about this, consequences of believing in evolution. So if you believe in evolution, what does that say about you? Well, this is an evolutionist here, and this is what he decided after believing and studying in evolution. What is evolution? A mindless process built on evil. Now, do you want your worldview built on evil? I mean, forget if you're a Christian or not a Christian. If your worldview is built on evil, is that who you represent as a person? Dr. Hull, the god of the Galapagos, is a careless, wasteless, indifferent, and goes on to say more than that, diabolical. Is that the god you want? Is that the god you pray to, a diabolical god? He is certainly not the sort of god, little g, He's not referring to a god, he's referring to any god with whom anyone would be inclined to pray. So is that what you want out of your life? Praying to a diabolical god? Is that who you see when you pray? Are you praying to a diabolical god? Hitler was a staunch evolutionist. He gave his books to his troops on philosophers that did not believe in God and he gave them books on Darwin. He was determined to develop a super race, and the super race were going to be Germans, right? And if you develop a super race, that means there must be races below you. And the races he saw below them were gypsies, homosexuals, and Jews. And if evolution is true, where it's a survival of the fittest, then it's okay to murder millions of Jews. Because after all, you're just helping evolution out. You're just helping the process that was already started. And so there's nothing wrong with that. Remember the Columbine shootings, where the two guys walked into Columbine High School and shot defenseless teenagers? They were staunch evolutionists. Do you remember the day they did that? It was Hitler's birthday. They did it for a reason on Hitler's birthday. So that's what we talked about in part two. Part three, we're going to get a little bit more personal now. It's why am I, an evolu why am I not an evolutionist? Okay? And when you have a question, there are three questions you can have. The first question is, you ask a question that is not only knowable, but there probably is an answer to it already. This is when you go to school, you raise your hand, teacher, I've got a question. It's probably noble, she probably has the answer. But you can also ask a second different type of question. You can ask a question which there seems like there should be an answer, but you don't have enough background information to answer it. And so, if you could get that information, you would have the answer. Or number three, you can ask a question whose answer is not knowable, even if you knew everything. So let me give you some examples. If I asked you who's the 16th president of the United States, I would say that question is not only knowable, but it's probably already known. So who's the 16th president? Very good. I hear a lot of people saying Lincoln. So now if I ask a question, are extraterrestrial UFOs real? Are there really little people living on other planets? Are we not alone in the universe? Well, you could say, gosh, that seems to be knowable. If I could turn over every rock in the entire universe, I'd know that answer. 
So that question is knowable, but I don't have the answer for it, for it yet. Now, some of you people may think you know the answer. And if you do, good for you. And then the third question, does God exist in a parallel universe? Well, if I knew everything about this universe, could I still answer that question? No, because that's a parallel. So I'm never going to be able to answer that question. So now we go back to this list of three questions, and I'm going to ask you, is evolution correct or is creation correct? Well, depends upon where you are in your belief right now. And by that, if you ask me, I would say the answer is not only knowable, I feel I know the answer to that question, and I feel it's already known. I think it's well established that evolution is not true. Even a lot of scientists nowadays are turning away from Darwinian evolution. We'll talk about that in a second. They're not turning to God, but the evolutionists are saying, no, Darwin didn't have it right. We don't know what it is, but we know Darwin isn't the right answer. But th there are a lot of people, I bet you, listening to me right now out here where you guys are, that's saying, well, if I had more information about that question, which is it, evolution or creation, I think I could answer that question. I, I just don't have enough information. Well, if that's you and you're sitting out there, thank you. I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're listening. And then the third thing is, I'll never know the answer because that's beyond my brain. God is so big, my brain is so small. Whenever we talk about God, there's no way that I'm going to be able to understand it, even if you gave me all the information. Never try to teach a pig calculus. It just frustrates you and makes the pig upset. The pig is not going to be able to understand it, and there are some people sitting in the audience that says, you know, I'm just not ever going to be able to get this right answer. So if you're here and you're number three, again, thank you for coming too, but my job here is to take you from three and see if I can't push you closer to two. If you're in two, you just want more information, if this lecture is good for you, then hopefully I'll be able to get you from two going more towards one. And if you're already in one, I hope to put those feet more firmly in concrete. So when those people do say in the grocery line, ha, look at this, another creationist story, you'll know what to say and you can help them. So evolution, there's different types of evolution. There's evolution, a cosmic evolution, which deals with time, space, and matter. There's a star and planetary evolution, how the planets were formed. There's the evolution regarding the beginning of life. And there's the evolution from species to species. Now, some people will talk about this microevolution. I don't believe it's an evolution. All we're changing is kinds. Probably when God created dogs, there was one dog, and through selective breeding, we selected a lot of different dogs based on their characteristics. They haven't involved, we've just shown certain types. So this is a dog, this is a dog, this is a dog. You get the idea. We haven't evolved, we've just selected for certain characteristics. What about cosmic evolutions, how the universe was evolved? And this is the origin of matter, okay? Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist, says the most difficult question that evolutionists have to face is, how did matter get here? How did it come about, okay? And if you talk to evolutionists, they say their theory is that there was, in the beginning, there was nothing, and then nothing collided with nothing, and from nothing collided with nothing, we ended up with something. Here is an artist's depiction of nothing colliding with nothing. <laughs> now, they're not going to tell you that straight out. They're going to say, well, there was space, space collided with space, and when that happened, there was antimatter and matter, and then eventually it formed helium and protons and electrons, and that helium and hydrogen eventually coalesced to form iron and what we have here. Okay. So from nothing to something to everything. And you think I'm teasing you? New physics, 2017. 
They're saying empty space is never really empty. There's this virtual particle that comes into being, then it disappears, goes into nothing, then it comes back to something, then it goes back to nothing. And that's how the evolution began. Okay, so if you want to believe this, if you want to believe that nothing collided with nothing and made something, rather than believing that there's a God out there who loves you, that cares for you, that wants the best for you, that has established rules to make your life easier, if you'd rather believe nothing makes nothing, then evolution has become your religion. That's what you're saying. You probably recognize this gentleman up here. So let's spend a second and talk about star and planetary evolution. There is what we call the nebular hypothesis, which I was taught in school and is still around, which means our solar system started as just dust particles and matter just floating around in this big circle, spinning. And then as it spun, the planets came together and the sun came together, and that's how we evolved. But there's problems with it, and it's called the problem of angular momentum. If I have something spinning in this direction, and something spins off, it'll keep spinning in that direction. It doesn't reverse course. So the solar system is spinning, it spins off, this planet, this planet, all going in the same direction. What wasn't known when this theory was developed is that Venus and Pluto, they rotate backwards. They spun off and they decided to spin in a different direction. Eight of 91 known moons rotate backwards. Again, against the law of angular motion. Saturn and Jupiter, this is really interesting, have moons that rotate in both directions. So if you're the planet Saturn, one moon is going in this direction, other moon is going in that direction as it rotates around the planet. And if everything started out as the same dust cloud, how did the sun end up being 98% helium and hydrogen, but the rest of the planets have less than 1%? And how did each planet end up greatly different in composition from each other? You hear stories about, we're going to go to Mars and we're going to mine that planet because it has higher deposits of this and that. That's what they're talking about. But one dust cloud made everything so different. And even galaxies can spin in the different directions. This is the geological column. And if you look at this side, it's totally fictitious. It looks good in a school book, but it's not true. It's Again, it's another lie that they're putting out in the school books for you. And what they're talking about, the Earth was formed 4.6 billion years ago. Okay, totally against what Genesis says. But there are different layers were formed down on the Earth, and you can see these are listed in millions of years. So this layer is laid down, allowed to harden, millions of years later. This one is laid down, allowed to harden, and as we go up. This is what you're supposed to, now the key word there is supposed to find, and the geological column as you're going up. And we'll talk about later how that's not found. So remember, and this is where dinosaurs lived in the Jurassic. But as you're going up, remember there's millions of years allowing each layer to harden. So how do you explain something like this? If each layer was allowed to harden for millions of years before the next layer was laid down, how does it bend? If I put down a concrete slab, I come back a year later, put down another concrete slab, a year later another concrete slab, then I try to bend it. Is it going to bend? No. If you get anything, it's going to fracture. The only way you get this, if these layers were laid down over a short period of time, and then a force was applied to it, allowing it to bend. Okay? Here's a canyon. You can see a small creek running along the canyon here. This small creek is estimated to take a million years before it eroded through this canyon. And see each one of these layers laid down over a million years between each layer. That's how we know this small stream took so long to erode through that. One problem with that theory. Does anybody know the problem with that? This is at the foothill of Mount St. Helens. 
This was put down over a six-day period. And all that snow and water ran off quickly. It was a deluge that ran through that canyon, quickly eroding it within six days. But if you were to look at it and look at that creek, well, that creek would take a million years to do it. That creek didn't erode. When you see the Grand Canyon and they say, oh, it took millions of years. Maybe that was the flood. And the flood was coming off and the flood eroded that. And that's why you have all the layers you see because of the flood. But they don't tell you that in school. No, they keep pushing this evolutionary theory. And here, closer up, you can see the, the lines. These are trees that are found in layers of rocks. Remember, each one is a million years old. So you can see this tree growing up for millions of years as rock layers were being laid. Well, that's kind of crazy. We know that's crazy. Even evolutionists know that's crazy. They say, no, this was, you know, these layers were laid down rapidly. So where you see these trees, evolutionists will tell you, layers were laid down rapidly, where you don't see the trees billions of years. So they pick and choose. They get to tell you what they want to tell you, when they want to tell you. That's how it works out. Right now, at Spirit Lake, these trees are forming exactly like this. When the mountain blew and sediment layers are being deposited, the trees died because of being waterlogged, they sunk to the bottom. And then the layers of mud, then eventually it'll harden. Then as they harden, you can see these same trees in Spirit Lake. Moon age, how old is the moon? Well, if the Earth is 4.5, billion years old, then the moon has to be 4.5 billion years old. So what does that mean? As the moon and earth were formed, even if they were molten lava, they were just red hot, they've had 4.5 billion years to cool off. And prior to 1960, everybody thought the moon was just a rock. Nothing more than that, a cold rock floating through space, not changing. Then, in the 1960s and 70s, Apollo astronauts started putting seismic monitors on the moon to see, is it a dead, cold rock and nothing's changing? Guess what they found? They found moonquakes and tectonic shifts. A tectonic shift is where two plates come together because of movement and they'll be shifting up and down. Earthquake, but in this case, it would be a moonquake. So it signifies that the moon is still cooling off. And you can see here two plates coming together, forming a crack, which is growing. We didn't know that. Let's change to biological evolution, OK? Now, if you can't read this in the back, there's a fish in this primordial soup. You can see the eyeball just floating around all by itself. And that brings up another question, how does an eyeball evolve? There's like 20 parts to an eyeball and all of them would have to evolve at the same time to see vision. They don't talk about that very often. Uh, and it says, don't walk away when I'm talking to you. Now the cartoon isn't gender specific, it doesn't say if this is the male and this is the female. <laughs> but I, I would rather suspect it may be the reverse of that. So if you see me and my wife sitting at separate tables, you'll know why, okay? <laughs> this is what's called the Cambrian Explosion. And we talked about how Darwinian evolution has come about, and Darwin even had problems with this. If you talk about evolution, what it says is you start with a single organism, and then by natural selection, it'll divide into two, and that two divide into two, and that two divides into two. But between each layer, there should be millions of years. Well, what we see in the geological record, unlike what I showed you, is that starting in the Cambrian period, all of these organisms just appear out of nowhere. All of a sudden, they just appear. Darwin hasn't explained it, and for 150 years, no one's been able to explain it. You know, if you have a big flood, 
and everything's drowning, the things at the lower levels are going to be in the lower layers, right? And if you can swim or get away to higher ground, you're going to be at a higher level. So every, all the evolutionists have been looking to find these, what they call um, divergent points, the so-called missing links. When you hear the word missing link, it isn't one missing link, there's hundreds and thousands of missing links. It isn't like if I just find this one piece to the puzzle, everything is going to make sense. That's not true. And so evolutionists nowadays are looking at this and they still can't explain it, and that's why they're turning away from Darwinian evolution, from Darwin, okay? But again, they're not going to God. They're going back to, we just got to find a better reason to explain this, still not using God. So, a couple years ago, it came out, big news. They finally found a missing link. Okay, you guys are supposed to applaud at this point. Yeah. Through all these years of searching, they finally found the missing link. They found the missing link between a salamander and a frog. Isn't that exciting? Look at it. It settles the long-standing. It's over. The debate is over. We finally found one, right? This is wonderful. Missing link settles the dispute for the origins of the frogs and salamanders. So if you were looking for a missing link on this, what would you look for? I would basically be looking at this area of the frog because as any five-year-old knows, the frog jumps and a salamander walks. And it has to do with the power of the hind legs. That hind leg is so much more different than this leg, right? It also has to do with the pelvis, how that femur, the thigh bone is connected to the pelvis, will tell me whether or not I can hop or I can walk. You can even identify male and female humans by the shape of their pelvis by which way the pelvis is working. So we're going to take close attention to this, and I'm going to show you some pictures. So remember, we're going to look at the pelvis and the legs. Nature magazine, not exactly Christian-friendly, comes out, and they said this specimen is preserved fully, preserved fully in the articulated. That means where the joints are, right? And it says it's missing only, only missing a stylopod and a zugopod in ventral portions of the pectoral girdle. What does that mean? Those are a lot of big words. The stylopod and the zoolopog, that's the frog's legs. The very part I'm looking for is missing in the pectoral girdle. That's his pelvis, where the legs join into the pelvis. Here's a picture of what they found. And you can, oops, whoops, let's try that again. So this is where the pelvis should be, right here, and the whole thing is missing. And the legs should be going out this way, and they're missing. But this has settled the dis debate, right? The debate is settled from this picture, guys. See how they lie to you? They keep lying to you over and over again. And we'll talk about why they're lying to you coming up. But this settles the dispute. So how did they come to the conclusion that this is the missing link between the two? Right here, they looked at the toes. By looking at the toes, we can tell you, we solved the mystery, guys. This is the missing link before it. Now, is everybody's toes here the same? Everybody's toes are different, right? So maybe this salamander, maybe it was a frog, maybe it just had a, a bad day and the toes were off. Evolution of dinosaurs, right? If everything's evolving, the dinosaur had to evolve. We can see here that it started with this single dinosaur here, and then it broke out. Two dinosaurs came from that, and then from this one. Whoa, look how many dinosaurs had evolved to get that line. So if evolution is correct, we should not only find these dinosaurs, but we should also find all these missing link dinosaurs, right? Dinosaurs are big, they've got big bones, they just can't hide. We've got to find them somewhere. And there's got to be quite a few of them. So, John Hopkins University, kind of a nice, respectable place, right? And this Dr. David, from my reading of the fossil records, no direct ancestors have been discovered. Do you guys know when the Greek word says no, you know what it means? 
No. Just like in English. No means no. Right? For any dinosaur species. Alas, by list of dinosaurs, ancestors is deficient? Lacking a little bit? What do you say? Empty. Empty. How can there be no dinosaur missing links out of what I just showed you? Maybe there are no missing links, huh? <laughs> now, we mentioned that dinosaurs, if you believe in evolution, that they went extinct 60 million years ago, and that men came along long after, there shouldn't be any overlap between men and dinosaurs, correct? But you see in different places where you have drawings of stuff that look like dinosaurs. See this one, a long neck here and a long tail? Kind of resembles this dinosaur, doesn't it? By comparison, you see an elephant down in the bottom. Then you see this flying. Mesopotamia, think I ran. And this is going to be from all over the world. It's not just one part. It's not just, you know, some theory that some people came up with. These are in Egypt. Again, the long neck, the body down here. This is really interesting to me. You see these two things which could be dinosaurs here. A man has a rope around its neck like he's trying to pull them apart. Man trying to pull this one apart, man trying to pull that one apart. And they're long necks. This is kind of interesting. You ever see two giraffes fight? When two giraffes fight, they use their necks as weapon. So these guys aren't just snuggling up with each other. They're in a battle for supremacy to see which one is the best. And when you see those two dinosaurs wrapped around the men trying to separate them, not only did they see a dinosaur, but they were familiar with them. This is in the United Kingdom. This is carvings on this bishop's tomb. You can see the dinosaur, the body, and the long neck. This is in Cambodia, a temple. And this is a relief column inside this temple, which was abandoned, you know, a thousand years ago. I want you to draw your attention to this relief up here, okay? And there's another picture of it close up. What does that remind you of? Doesn't it look like a dinosaur that you see there? Looks like it to me. So you ask an evolutionist, well, you don't believe that men and dinosaurs were together. What do, you, what do you make of there? And the evolutionist will tell you, well, that's just representation of a lizard. And see this chameleon? See the little bumps on the back? That's what this is. This is a chameleon. Does anybody believe that? Even the evolutionists don't believe it. So the other evolutionists said, no, it's not a chameleon. These are rhinoceroses. See, that looks like a rhinoceros. And these blades in the back that you see sticking up here, that's vegetation in the background. Okay, that's not part of the animal, that's just, that's just vegetation. Okay, if you believe in evolution, it is your religion. You're gonna stick with it to the very end. In Texas, they found a river bottom that had a bunch of tracks in it. Everybody agrees these are dinosaur tracks. And there's a series of 14 steps that some people say these are human steps along with the dinosaur. Okay, now if you're evolutionist, you say, no, this is not a dinosaur, this is just, excuse me, this is not human, this is just another dinosaur. Whoops, went by one, two more, let's go back. Can we lighten that up a little bit? That's my fault, yeah, that's good. So, this is a dinosaur print here. This is a big one you can see. But inside this dinosaur print is a second print. And some people look at this and recognize it as human. This doesn't show up as well as in a photograph, but you can see a big toe. See the little toes coming out here? The foot that comes around the heel, the instep. And here you can see it. And so people argue about this back and forth. If you're a creationist, you can see a foot. If you're not, you don't. But somebody came along and said, I don't like that. That does not agree with my worldview. So what they did was they took a piece of rebar 
And they went along and they chomped it up where the foot was. Because it doesn't agree with me and I can't explain it, I'm going to destroy that evidence. So at least whoever destroyed it thought it looked like a human footprint as well. Here's more of those tracks. You can see here the impression of the heel and the foot going along here. And this is a person who's actually put their foot inside this dinosaur track to show you how much dinosaurs can look like human footprints. That's sarcasm, by the way, in case you didn't pick up on it. In 1925, this animal washed up on shore. This animal here washed up on shore. These people that saw it said it had a neck that was 20 feet long. Now, it washed up on Monterey Beach. And if you look at the topography of the underwater, there's a deep canyon that comes up almost to shore. So if anything is in this deep canyon, it would, could eventually make its way to the beach. So in 1925, this washed up. Nobody knew what it was. They took some picture. It had already been starting to decay. This is a dinosaur that used to be in this sea. Evolutionists looked at this and said, nope, you don't have a dinosaur here. You have a whale. It's a special type of a whale with a 20-foot neck. Okay, so now, do you believe this or do you believe this? Does this head look more like this? And they did some studies of the skull of this and it didn't quite match the skull of that, but they still insisted, no, we have a whale here. Closer to home, the first confirmed dinosaur fossil found in the state of Washington. You can see him working on the bones. It was on the sound. It was close to the water when they found it. And they said it was a type of species of Tyrannosaurus rex, although not that. And they said it was from the thigh bone. I'm pointing to the right thigh bone, but they said it was the left. But the interesting part is they found it with shallow water clams. So what's a land dinosaur doing with shallow water clams? Well, the evolutionists quickly explained it. A big tide washed in, took the dinosaur, dragged it out to the sea where it fossilized. That's why they found it at low tide. Well, I haven't seen a big wave come in during the sound, but that's their story. This is Sue. Sue is the best whole body representation of we have of a Tyrannosaurus rex. And so you can see here that it was found in South Dakota, not even close to land, and they found it with shark's teeth. So again, we have a land animal with shark's teeth. Well, how do you explain that? Well, one time, a long time ago, it was a big, vast seas, and the topography was different, and the sea was there. So that's how evolutionists would explain it. But what they don't explain it is land dinosaurs have been found with water animals everywhere in the world. Does the word worldwide mean something to you? A worldwide flood where these animals all got mixed up together? Maybe that's the reason you can find shark's teeth with dinosaur bones in South Dakota because of a flood. And we talked about that fossil layer, remember? And we said, you know, this is an artist's representation of what it should be. And the dinosaur layers, the Jurassic layer was the dinosaur. To date, there have been 432 mammals found in dinosaur layers. Well, if that layer was 33 million years ago, how are you getting mammals there? They weren't even around them. They won't come on the scene for tens of scores of millions of years in the future. But we still find mammals in dinosaur layers. And what about these? <laughs> Recognize this? This is a fish and this is a school of fish. And what's interesting thing about this? You notice? All the fish are pointing in the same direction. So if it's millions of years ago, this school of fish would die for whatever reason, and as they would float to the bottom, they would float in different directions. Scavengers would find them at the bottom, rearrange their bones as a crab grabs one and tries to drag it off. Do you think they'd all be pointing in the same direction? No, the fact that they're all fossilized in the same direction means that something sudden and catastrophic happened to them to get them all be pointing in the same direction. 
Let's talk about monkeys. You maybe heard that monkeys have 98% of the DNA that people have. That's an incorrect statement. They're lying to you again. What they do is they cherry pick. They only look at proteins that code for genes. In my body, I have hemoglobin. That's the protein that carries my oxygen. If I look at my hemoglobin compared to a monkey's hemoglobin, yeah, it's 98% the same because it does the same function. But it's the same as in a pig, too. So it doesn't make a difference. If you look at variations among different individuals, the variation between Roger and Ben, the variation between those people will be 4.5%. So if the variation between two humans is 4.5%, how can the variation between a monkey and a human only be 2%? So they're lying to you. They're picking out details and they're giving them in the wrong context. Okay? And so when you look at all the DNA, the actual number is closer to 75 to 85% of the matching. That's still a high number, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Okay? Some of the studies say it's as little as 70%. So a geneticist looking at this, and he was doing actually pig here, pig protein, blanket comparisons of DNA sequence doesn't mean very much because they all have the same function. So, is it common design or common descent? Back in the 1960s, before gene testing was possible, they asked evolutionists, once we do figure out this genes, are the genes of a monkey and the genes of a human are gonna be similar or very different? They said, oh, it's gonna be very different because they've had hundreds of thousands of years of genetic mutations, the DNA is gonna to be totally different. The, evolution, the creationists said, no, they're going to be quite a bit alike because they do the same function. You're going to see a lot of overlap. So who was right? The creationists were correct. How did the evolutionists explain it? They said, well, there was convergent evolution. Yes, we were right, it split apart, but now it's coming back together again. This random thing all of a sudden decided we're going to come back together. Just kind of crazy. And so this is the way they had it. They said humans are closer to champies and gorillas and orangutans. But then they looked at epigenetic, and this is for the nerds in the group, okay? Epigenetics are the genes right next to these genes that are the 98% genes. And they said, let's not just look at the protein genes, let's look at the genes that are right next to them. And so they came up with this. They said, no, I think it's orangutan, gorilla, and chimpanzee. So they're changing their mind, okay? So they don't have a steady story that they keep telling you. It keeps changing depending upon what they look at. And so sometimes you'll hear the stories, oh, science has now figured out that the orangutan is closer to human. The story keeps changing, folks. It's a moving target. And just to tell you the minutiae that they go to, this they're looking at spit. Is your spit closer to the spit of a chimpanzee or to a gorilla or to another monkey? Well, if you look at this, it looks like it's closer. This line looks like it's closer to human. But I'm only showing you this story to show you this. What does human spit match up with? None of them. You know why it doesn't match up with any of them? Because it's not. They're all different. They're not descended from one another. Human variation. Science Magazine, not a Christian-friendly magazine by any means, right? They looked at variation. And notice all these people look different. Well, if you start out with two people, they have children, they have children, the further out you go, the more variation you're going to have, right? So by looking at the variation, we can also work our way backwards to find out when did that variation begin. So Science Magazine started something totally different. Instead of guessing at how long this has been going on and guessing how far a distance we're talking about, they took known time and known geographical space. They started what was known and they worked backwards to see how long all this variation could take place. And this non-Christian friendly magazine came up with this conclusion. The maximum likelihood for accelerated growth for all this variation 
5,115 years. Didn't go back millions of years, didn't go back hundreds of thousands of years. It went back 5,115 years. What happened roughly 5,000 years ago? That was the flood. And they didn't start with two people after the flood, right? There were four pairs, Noah, three sons. And so if you factor knowing the three sons back into 4,500, you can get 5,000 years really easy. And they said that's the maximum. We're getting close to the end. So is this design or is it random? On the right is a rose-stained window from a cathedral in France. It has thousands of little tiny panes. Can everybody see how this was made by somebody? This is another one. Instead of having thousands of little particles, this has trillions of particles. And this, not only does it much more elaborate, if one of these panes get broken, guess what? It can fix itself. Does anybody recognize what this is over here? This is a DNA molecule on end. Instead of looking at the spiral that you're used to looking at, we're now looking right down the barrel of a DNA. Trillions of little pieces make this up. See the design intricate pattern? See the fact that it can repair itself? But gosh, that's just, this happened by accident and this was made. Anybody a hiker around here? You go on hikes, what do you look for? You look for a trail marker, right? And how do you know these are trail markers? Because they look different than everything else. Look at this, it's just a piece of wood. It has like six sides, a few little markings, more complicated, less complicated. And this, it's just a swash of whitewash on a tree. But I look at this and I say, I know that was man-made. When I look at the tree, which it's man-made next to, the tree reproduces itself, it repairs itself, it grows. It does all this much more complicated than this white paint. But I look at the paint and I say, yeah, that's man-made, the tree that just got there by accident. See how incredibly crazy that is to me? This is a bee, and the bee is on a flower. Now what happens when a bee goes to get nectar, it makes a buzzing sound and probably some vibrations next to the flower. Within three minutes of that bee being near the flower, the sugar production of the flower goes up. The flower senses that the bee is there and starts making more sugar to make sure the bee comes back. Do you think that happened by accident? You don't see a designer in that? You don't see somebody's hand in that? You know, somebody asked me, you know, with, with a baby when there's a birth defect, you know, why does that happen? And my feeling is always, how is it that any baby is born? I mean, it's amazing to me that any child comes out normal with all the billions of things that have to go right. So, last slide, and perhaps the most important slide. Why does recent creation matter? So what? You say evolution, you've spent three hours of my time talking about evolution, and this. why are you so serious about this? Why do you think it matters that much? Well, the book of Genesis, when it talks about the flood and it talks about creation, you're either going to believe it or you're not going to believe it. If you believe in evolution, you're saying the book of Genesis is wrong. That's what it comes down to, clear and simple. If you say the book of Genesis is wrong, what implications? Follow the logical conclusion of that. The book of Genesis is wrong, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. And it quotes the Old Testament as if it's correct. Well, if you, now you don't believe in the Old Testament, do you have any faith in the New Testament quoting something that's false? No, so now we can throw out the New Testament and the Old Testament. You throw out the Old Testament, what does that mean? Well, it means that you don't have to believe you're a sinner. It means you don't have to believe in a redeemer. It means that you don't have to think that somebody paid the price for your sins. And then you can just throw out the rest of the Bible. 
That's why I'm so emphatic that you people understand that evolution is not correct. Because once you believe it's correct, you can throw out the rest of the Bible. You know, I believe in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were thrown out, it wasn't because they wanted to know the difference between good and evil. We all need to know the difference between good and evil. Their sin was that they wanted to decide for themselves what was good and evil. Because if I get to decide for myself what's good and what's evil, then who becomes God in that situation? I do. I'm now God. And I can do anything I want to anybody I want, anytime I want, because I'm God. And it all stands from believing something as simple as evolution. And evolutionists would love you to believe it's true. And that's why it's so dangerous to believe in evolution, okay? All right, go ahead and stand and we'll have prayer. Okay, let me just remind you again that afterwards uh, there's potluck. If you didn't bring anything, that's okay. There's always plenty of food. Please stay. If you're a visitor, especially invitation goes out to you. Pick a table, go to the table. They'll be dismissed by tables. Okay. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Thank you for... Basically, it's for giving us so, in, so much information that we don't have to believe in this evolution, that we can see it for what it is, a lie that's being brought upon us. We just pray that the information we learn today will be helpful, not only in securing our total belief, but in being able to share it with other people. As we're getting ready to eat the meal, we just pray that you'd bless the food and the people that prepared us and let us have good fellowship. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I've got a textbook here. This is a medical textbook that I have. And the year of this medical textbook is 100 years ago. But that's okay that it's 100 years old because it's in a textbook. I know it's the truth, right? In this textbook, it talks about how to cure treponema, which for the rest of us is syphilis. And it says, we recommend full doses of mercury in a compressed tablet form. The dose is a quarter grain three times a day, increased by one or two quarters each day, until the patient shows, get this, till the patient shows distinct evidence of the full systemic effect of the drug. You know what the full systemic effect of mercury is? It's called death. Right? So if you get the full systemic effect of mercury, you're going to die. And if you get the full systemic effect of evolution, I tell you, you're drinking Kool-Aid. Because it eventually, if you let it work into your life, it'll kill you. You know, just as Jim Jones had his people drink Kool-Aid, evolutionists want you to sip on theirs and just a little sip here and there. You'll get the full systemic effect, I guarantee you. Mike Norwood is going to sing one last song of worship, and when he's through, he'll dismiss you. We'll take this as a song of worship, but more appropriately, it's a prayer, so let's approach it as such. From the heights of heights to the depths of the sea, creation's revealing your majesty. From the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature unique in the song that it sings, all exclaiming, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All Powerful, untamable, awestruck, we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim, you are amazing God, who has told every lightning bolt where it should go. 
or seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow who imagine the sun and give source to its light yet conceals it to bring us the coolness of night none can fathom indescribable uncontainable you place the stars in the sky and you know them by name you are amazing God all-powerful untamable awestruck we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim you are amazing God incomparable unchangeable you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same you are amazing God incomparable unchangeable you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same you are amazing God you are amazing God amen